welcome to the Aristotelian Society. Um, tonight's speaker, we welcome back to London. Daniel Vihoff did the MPhil here at UCL uh, some years ago, uh, and then he went to do his PhD at uh, Columbia. Then he taught at Sheffield, and he's now teaching at NYU. And it's a pleasure to welcome him to give his talk called Serving the Governed uh, on the Truth in Political Instrumentalism. Thank you, Tim. Uh, thank you to the Australian Society for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Since the talk is somewhat on the long side, let me jump right in. But let me flag for those of you who have the written text in front of you that because it's on the long side, I've cut a couple of shorter passages, usually parenthetical remarks or clarifications, just so you, you know when there is a jump. All right, so political instrumentalism is a view about how to justify one person's having political power over another. Central to it is the thought that justifications of political power must be, in an important sense, derivative. And the claim that this requirement bars a number of justifications widely endorsed in political and philosophical discussions. Consider, for instance, how to justify giving an equal share of political power to all citizens, as in a democracy, as opposed to giving such power to only a few, as in an aristocracy, or a single ruler, as in a monarchy. The political instrumentalist asserts that democracy cannot be justified by appealing to each citizen's basic moral right to a say in the making of the laws, or by invoking citizens' fundamental interest in having such a say, or indeed by the thought that giving citizens such a say and thus power over each other is intrinsically valuable. Nor, to state the obvious, could aristocracy or monarchy be justified in such a fashion. If a democratic distribution of power is justified, its justification must instead rest on other reasons. Political instrumentalism, or instrumentalism for short, has a significant historical pedigree, reaching back at least to John Stuart Mill, who famously asserted that the democratic franchise is a trust rather than a right, because, as he says, no person can have a right, except in a purely legal sense, to power over others. More recently, it has been influentially offended by Richard Arneson, who has argued for what he calls a purely instrumental account of political legitimacy, according to which only instrumental considerations can justify particular distributions of political power. And yet instrumentalism has been relatively neglected in discussions of political justification. Just consider by comparison the amount of ink spilled on questions of liberal neutrality, perfectionism, or public reason. I think this reflects many people's impression that instrumentalism is ultimately a quite unattractive position that rests on an overly cramped axiology. It may seem to presuppose that only consequences matter and nothing else, or that it never matters how we do things, only what we do, or that our relationships to others only have instrumental value. And even if instrumentalism doesn't expressly presuppose these general claims, it may at least seem to lack the imagination to conceive how democracy or other forms of political power could have non-instrumental value. I think this misconstrues the moral basis of instrumentalism. The purpose of this talk is thus to develop another, more attractive account of political instrumentalism. The central claim that it defends is ultimately this. The instrumentalist restriction on how power is justified does not reflect an overly narrow view of what kinds of relationships or actions could have value. Instead, it reflects a particular concern for a distinctive and frequently overlooked requirement of respect for another's rational agency that governs our relationships. 
After some brief remarks about what an account of instrumentalism should aspire to, this talk discusses in detail different ways in which recent discussions have articulated what instrumentalism is committed to. It is widely assumed that instrumentalism is centrally concerned with a kind of value that can justify political power relations. So much seems indeed suggested by the label itself. But I argue that none of the most plausible ways of filling in this idea, by distinguishing between derivative or non-derivative value or instrumental and non-instrumental value, is ultimately successful. The axiological distinctions seem either over or under-inclusive relative to our assessment of actual political justifications, and the rationale for imposing an axiological restriction of this sort is difficult to discern. I thus propose a different account of instrumentalism's central commitment. Goods whose characterization necessarily makes reference to one person's having power over another cannot justify that very power relation. This particular constraint on political justification is, in turn, grounded in a deeper moral claim. Allowing such goods to enter into the justification of political power will normally be disrespectful of the subject's agency and thus of her. She can thus reasonably re object to being under another's power if justifying the power relation requires appealing to such goods. So understood, instrumentalism is much more morally attractive than has often been recognized. And interestingly, it is not altogether incompatible with procedural concerns, often thought excluded by it. Most importantly, certain non-instrumental arguments for political equality, and so for democracy, may be compatible with respect for agency, as long as they value not that citizens have power over each other, but that citizens are not subject to unequal power relations. I conclude by briefly highlighting the implications instrumentalism has so understood for concrete questions in political ethics. So let me begin by briefly clarifying what an account of political instrumentalism is concerned with. Instrumentalism's core concern, how to justify one person's having political power over another, in principle covers both why anyone should have such power over another citizen C, why, if you will, C has an obligation to follow anyone's decision or is subject to anyone's coercive power, and the separate question why, if for some reason or another it is practically necessary that someone have such power over C, it should be some particular person A. To consider the matter from the opposite direction, to justify A's having power over C requires justifying both that someone should have such power over C and that it should be A. The following discussion will subsume both of these under the more concrete question how a particular distribution of political power is to be justified. We may usefully think of the distribution of decision-making power and more generally the question of how decisions are made, by whom or on what basis, as a matter of political procedure. Political instrumentalism is thus centrally a position about how to justify political procedures broadly understood, a view not about what political decisions should be made, but how they should be made and how we justified that they should be made in this way rather than that. Instrumentalism denies that certain arguments that have seemed to many philosophers to provide a plausible basis for justifying political procedures can in fact do the job. One way of understanding instrumentalism is thus as simply summarizing an independently reached conclusion about justified political procedures. When we consider one by one different justifications of political procedures, we discover that those justifications that rest on certain non-instrumental considerations each fail, and only those that rest on other instrumental considerations succeed. 
But on this summary view, the fact that the justification rests on this particular kind of value does not play a central role in explaining its failure. I mentioned the summary view only to set it aside and to focus instead on another way of understanding instrumentalism. On that alternative view, instrumentalism is meant to offer an explanation why certain justifications fail, because they appeal to the wrong kinds of considerations, those that are non-instrumental. Now, why focus on the explanatory rather than the summary view? First, I think it is doubtful that considering one by one different non-instrumental justifications and finding them wanting would be particularly effective for establishing the instrumental conclusion. After all, it leaves it open to the opponent of instrumentalism to insist that giving certain people a political say is simply a bedrock normative ideal that requires no further justification. Faced with this claim, one would want a positive argument for denying that there could be such an ideal or that the ideal could play the justificatory role that it is meant to play. Second, the summary approach does not take sufficiently seriously what I believe motivates many of those inclined towards instrumentalism. The sense that the failure of non-instrumental justifications is not just coincidental, but instead due to their non-instrumental features. The aim of this talk is thus to articulate an account of the principled objection instrumentalists have to certain ways of justifying political power and to show the principle underpinning the objection to be morally plausible in its own right. Now, with this methodological discussion out of the way, let me turn to more substantive matters. Discussions of instrumentalism frequently contrasted to proceduralism. This may invite confusion. Instrumentalism is, its name suggests, concerned with a kind of value that political power and its distribution has, instrumental rather than non-instrumental value. Proceduralism, by contrast, appears to be concerned with a locus of value that justifies political power. It is the value of procedures rather than outcomes. What lies behind this somewhat odd contrast is, I think, the thought that procedures have qualities that are independent of the outcome they reach, a procedure may, for instance, be fair insofar as it gives everyone an equal say and yet be unreliable in identifying the substantively best policy, and that these qualities may be thought to have non-instrumental value. So on a common understanding, what the instrumentalist denies and the proceduralist asserts is that the non-instrumental value of the outcome-independent quality of a procedure, or the non-instrumental value of the procedure for short, can justify that procedure. Most obviously, perhaps, it cannot justify the procedure because no such value exists. Arneson, for instance, frequently frames his instrumentalism in opposition to the claim that democracy or any other distribution of political power is intrinsically and not merely instrumentally just. I believe that this focus on the kind of value that outcome-independent qualities or procedures have is mistaken. Instrumentalism so understood is both hard to motivate and difficult to align with judgments about particular cases. To show this, I consider next the two most plausible strategies for drawing the axiological distinction at which talk of a political procedure's instrumental or non-instrumental value gestures. The first strategy treats instrumental value as equivalent to non-intrinsic or derivative value and insists that political procedures can only be justified by the derivative value their contribution makes to some other good. The second strategy further narrows the domain of the instrumental to exclude both intrinsic and constitutive value, and asserts that only a procedure's causal contribution to some good can bear on its justification. Neither makes for a plausible account of instrumentalism's central commitments. 
Let me begin with the first view. Arneson's opposition to the thought that democracy or other distribution of the political power could be intrinsically and not merely instrumentally valuable suggests that instrumentalism denies that political procedures could have intrinsic value. In the context of this discussion, to say that something has intrinsic value is normally to say that its value is not derived from the contribution that it makes to the realization of some other good. So what the instrumentalist appears to be denying is that political procedures can be justified by their non-derivative value or by their being good as such. I will call this the narrow interpretation of instrumentalism because it excludes relatively little compared to the alternative understanding I discuss next. What instrumentalism rejects on this narrow interpretation is that we could justify each citizen's right to vote in a democracy by saying, it's a good thing as such that we each have a say in deciding how everyone around here is to act with regard to certain matters. The attraction of this narrow interpretation is that it captures at least part of what plainly motivates the instrumentalist position. That when it comes to justifying one person's power over another, it cannot be enough to simply say that it is good as such that there be such power. But the narrow interpretation comes at a significant cost. It leaves plenty of room for paradigmatically proceduralist arguments of the sort instrumentalists would generally wish to reject. Many proceduralists do not, for instance, claim that a fair or egalitarian procedure is good as such or has non-derivative value. Instead, they claim that a fair procedure has value that derives from the contribution that its outcome-independent qualities make to certain other things that are of value. Consider an influential account of democracy's value suggested by Thomas Christiana. People have a fundamental non-derivative interest in public equal respect, Christiana argues. Under conditions of disagreement, the best or perhaps only way to show such respect is to establish and obey democratic decision-making procedures. So the democratic procedure has value only derivatively because it contributes to the realization of the good of public equal respect. <coughs> Still, the value the procedure has depends on its outcome-independent quality, the fact that everyone is given an equal say. If instrumentalism is meant to bar an argument with this structure, then simply foreclosing appeals to procedures non-derivative value is inadequate. In light of this, let me turn to the alternative, broad interpretation of instrumentalism. It is suggested by the observation that, on at least some ways of carving up the domain of value, it contains more than intrinsic and instrumental value. While intrinsic value is non-derivative and instrumental value is derivative, the latter is not the only derivative form of value. There is also what is sometimes referred to as constitutive value. Both instrumental and constitutive values depend on contributions made to something else that is of value, but the contributions they make differ in kind. Something has instrumental value in virtue of its causal contribution to the realization of some other good. Thus, my hammer is instrumental value because it makes a causal contribution to my hanging up a picture in the living room. Something has constitutive value, by contrast, in virtue of its non-causal contribution to the realization of some other good. So my being concerned for my friend who had an accident may have value not because it causes anything good, but because it constitutes, without causing, my being a good friend to her. According to a second broad interpretation of instrumentalism inspired by this distinction, insisting that political procedures must be justified instrumentally amounts to in asserting that procedures can be justified by neither their intrinsic nor their constitutive value. Instead, they can only be justified by their causal contribution. 
This broad interpretation resolves the problem the narrow interpretation confronted. For while Christiana's argument from public equal respect can avoid the charge of treating democratic procedures as non-derivatively valuable, it does treat them as constitutively valuable. Having and obeying democratic procedures does not cause us to show public equal respect. Rather, having and obeying democratic procedures is itself a way of showing such respect, at least when certain background conditions are met. So on the broad interpretation, Christiana's argument is objectionably non-instrumental, which is what one would expect the instrumentalist to say. But the broad interpretation comes at a significant cost. First, it is rather more difficult to see how one would establish that no procedure could have constitutive value that could figure in its justification. After all, there are many ways in which a procedure may contribute non-causally to some other good, and each of these many instances of constitutive value would have to be excluded by the instrumentalist argument. I'll return to this point later. Second, and more importantly for now, the broad interpretation bars not only arguments that are distinctly proceduralist. Its focus on constitutive value effectively also precludes appeals to certain clearly outcome-oriented considerations, the value of certain outcome-dependent qualities a procedure may have, that one would expect an instrumentalist to leave room for. Consider an example. When driving, I have duties of care to my fellow road users. I must adopt reasonable measures to minimize the risk of harming others while engaging in a hazardous activity, or else I act with objectionable negligence. And one way to take due care when driving is following the rules laid down in the traffic code, the traffic signage erected by the city council, or the directives of a police officer guiding traffic. Two features of this example are relevant here. First, the officer's power to direct traffic, the council's power to set up road signs, and the legislature's power to create a traffic code may all rest or be justified by their respective capacity to reliably identify conditions affecting risky driving. Justifying A's power over B by pointing to A's capacity to reliably identify hazards that B may face and thus helping B to respond to these sounds like just the outcome-oriented argument for A's power over B an instrumentist should allow for. And yet the broad interpretation must reject this justification because following these reliable directives is constitutively rather than instrumentally valuable. It contributes to our taking due care, but it does not do so by causing us to take due care. Rather, following the directives of a reliable decision-maker simply is a way of taking due care. Doing so constitutes rather than causes our taking due care, just as obeying egalitarian procedures constitutes rather than causes our treating others with public equal respect. Now, someone might bite the bullet and insist that a procedure's constitutive contribution to the avoidance of negligence really cannot count towards its justification. But this invites the worry mentioned earlier that instrumentalism adopts an overly narrow view of what is good or normatively relevant. Since it is not clear what acting with due care and acting fairly share beyond the formal feature of being a matter of how we do things to the realization of which procedures may make a non-causal contribution, rejecting both invites the thought that instrumentalism generally denies that it could matter how we do things rather than what we do. But denying this is deeply implausible. So I think instrumentalists have very good reason to try and find another way of identifying what they object to that distinguishes between arguments like the one from due care and that from public equal respect. Let me offer a diagnosis of the problem faced by the accounts of instrumentalism just discussed. Their focus on the kind of contribution, derivative or non-derivative, derivative, causal or non-causal, that political procedures make to some good 
and in virtue of which they have value. But by focusing on the kind of contribution political procedures make to some good, they divert attention from a related yet separate and ultimately more important issue, the nature of the good to which the contribution is made. A focus on the latter makes possible a more plausible understanding of instrumentalism's commitments and motivations. Consider again the two cases we have been discussing. The contribution that a reliable procedure makes to the good of taking due care, like the contribution a fair egalitarian procedure makes to the good of public equal respect, is non-causal. Following a reliable procedure is a way of taking due care, rather than a way of bringing it about that due care is taken. And following a fair egalitarian procedure is a way of showing public equal respect, not just a way of bringing it about that such respect is shown. This indicates that for a procedure to make a constitutive contribution to some good, there must be a way in which a complete specification of that good itself makes reference to a feature of the procedure. Some procedural feature is itself constitutive of the good in question. Thus it is because taking due care just is, at least in part, a matter of acting in a way that is suitably responsive to the hazards our actions create for others, that following a procedure that reasonably tracks and reduces such hazards, that is a reliable procedure, is a way of taking due care. It is because showing public respect just is, in part, a matter of giving equal positive weight to the judgments of others, that following a procedure that the outputs of which are publicly determined by giving equal weight to people's votes is a way of showing public equal respect for our co-citizens. Yet there is an important difference between the goods to which the procedures make the relevant non-causal contribution. For the good of due care to which the reliable procedure contributes makes reference to a procedural feature, reliability, that can be specified without any reference to one person's having power over another. By contrast, the good of public equal respect is not fully explicable, at least as Cristiano understands it, without reference to who has power over whom. Under conditions of disagreement, public equal respect just is in part a matter of giving some people a say over what others should do. What matters is not, then, how the procedure contributes to the relevant good in question, but whether the good to which the, co the procedure contributes is one that is partly constituted by certain procedural features, such as who has power over whom. The good at issue and the kind of contribution that the procedure makes to that good are clearly related. So the account I offer, which focuses on the good rather than the contribution, nonetheless explains why many discussions of instrumentalism have misguidedly focused on the contribution. If instrumentalism bars justifications based on goods that are partly constituted by procedural feature F, then we can invoke neither the intrinsic nor the constitutive value of an F procedure qua F procedure, since in either case we would appeal to F constituted goods that are barred. Yet the inadmissibility of intrinsic and constitutive arguments is not a fundamental feature of the instrumentalist position, but an implication of its commitment to denying that certain kinds of goods those the characterization of which makes an essential reference to certain procedural features can justify power relations. At the same time, the focus on the good at issue, rather than the kind of contribution the procedure makes, allows for a more fine-grained approach that can distinguish between those procedural features that are deemed problematic and those that are not. Even if reliable procedures, like fair procedures, can make a constitutive contribution to some good, the fact that the goods are different and refer in their characterization to different procedural features explains why we may treat these justifications differently. 
But which procedural features in particular are deemed so problematic by instrumentalism that goods that make a central reference to them are inadmissible? The example of due care has already shown that not all procedural features fall into this category. Features that have to do with how we make decisions, reliably rather than who makes decisions democratically with each person giving say, should not be barred. But in fact, even certain features that have to do with who makes decisions should not be excluded. For there is a clear counterexample to the claim that goods that figure in the justification of particular power should never make reference to who has power over whom. There is, most of us accept, value in leading an autonomous life. It matters whether people can choose for themselves whom to marry, what career to pursue, or what religion to adopt. And the natural way to spell out the ideal of autonomy refer makes reference to who has decision-making power over an agent's life, the agent herself rather than someone else. If the value of autonomy figures in the justification of power relations, then so does at least one good that is characterized by who has power over whom. A more careful formulation of instrumentalist's core concern thus focuses on the kinds of goods to which one may appeal in justifying political power relations and highlights that these cannot be goods, the characterization of which makes necessarily reference to one person's having power over another. This helps avoid the problems that the narrow and broad interpretations faced. Yet the question remains what motivation there is for adopting an instrumentalist constraint in the first place. Why should goods constituted by one person's having power over another be inadmissible in justifications of these power relations? There may seem to be an obvious answer, because no such goods, that is, nothing good of that sort, exists. Yet such an answer is more difficult to defend than it may seem. For there are many ways in which something can acquire value or become a good in the relevant sense. Things can acquire non-instrumental value by becoming important to us, figuring our projects, and so on. Something it may take as little as someone's desiring that A rule over B for it to become valuable for A to rule over B, because now the power, that the power relation exists ensures non-causally the satisfaction of the desire. But even if we adopt a more demanding view of what it takes for something to become valuable in this way, it remains true that something can be imbued with non-instrumental value via a suitable pattern of concern or valuing, suitable projects or relationships, and so on. In our culture, it is among the norms of friendship that I call you on your birthday. And this makes calling you on your birthday non-instrumentally valuable. But then why couldn't the fact that a culture values norms of obedience as part of other relationships, say, relations between adult children and their elderly parents, between citizens and officials, or indeed between citizens as subjects and the collective constituted by the citizens as voters, not also imbue the resulting relations of power with non-instrumental value. I think the right response is that instrumentalism's core concern is not, in the first instance, with denying that there could be some such value in power relations. Instead, it is concerned with how we should relate to each other as moral agents and whether power relations based on certain goods, goods that are partly constituted by certain relations of power, are compatible with due respect. And while the concern for respect has important implications for the possibility of imbuing power relations with the value via our attitudes, this axiological conclusion is ultimately derived from a prior normative claim about how we ought to relate to each other. So here's what I want to argue next. The basic thought that underpins instrumentalism about political power is that no good that is partly constituted by, that is, the characterization of which makes necessarily reference to A's having power over B, could justify A's having power over B because A's power so justified 
would be incompatible with respect for B's moral agency. To make this thought plausible, consider how we would generally go about justifying A's rule over B. To begin, we would want to show that there is some good in A's having power over B, and indeed more good than bad. Among the relevant goods would usually be the instrumental benefit that such a rule could realize. Successful coordination in the pursuit of some valuable goals, say, or the avoidance of certain harmful acts, which B may otherwise be inclined to undertake. The relevant costs may be instrumental, perhaps A's rule prevents B from engaging in instrumentally valuable action, or non-instrumental. B's autonomy is maybe undermined by A's rule, or A's power threatened by, or A's power may threaten the possibility of a valuable egalitarian relationship between A and B. But this is not all, for even if the value of A's rule is net positive, B could reasonably complain about how the costs and benefits of A's rule are distributed. If B is not responsible for bearing the burden of bringing about the goods at issue, then even if the authoritative relation has positive value overall, B can object to it because she is made to bear an unfair share of the costs for bringing about these goods. A natural way of putting this thought, to which I will occasionally, on which I will occasionally fall back, is that A's rule over B can be justified only by appeal to goods that B has reason to help bring about anyway, so that A's rule ultimately serves B by helping B to do what she anyway has reason to do. But even this does not, I want to suggest next, exhaust the objections B may raise to A's rule. B may not only object there is not enough good to A's rule or to the distribution of the benefits and burdens that yield the net good. B can also reasonably object to certain goods figuring in the justification of A's rule at all. These goods, B may complain, should not figure in the justification of A's power because they're incompatible with proper respect for B, as would any relation of power justified on their basis. Here is an example. I mentioned earlier that we can imbue things with value via a pattern of concern, valuing, or engagement. For the sake of simplicity, let me say that desiring X gives some value to X. Desiring X is here just a stand-in for whatever more complex attitude or action can in fact imbue something with value, be that of valuing something, engaging with it, incorporating it, or incorporating it into one's project, or whatever else. For the purposes of the following argument, nothing hangs and how exactly we spell out the details of the value-imbuing attitude. Now imagine that A simply desires ruling over B for its own sake, or maybe to advance A's own ends, and not because this ruling over B would help bring about some independently specifiable good to the realization of which B could fairly be expected to make a contribution. For the sake of brevity, I will refer to this as a desire to rule simpliciter, in contrast to a desire to rule to serve B or a desire to serve. Even if in general satisfying someone's desire or advancing someone's attitude-dependent interest is valuable, here A's desire to rule could not legitimately enter into the justification of A's rule over B and justify such rule where it would otherwise not be justified. It could not do so because B could object to A's desire so figuring the justification or to being under A's rule because A so desires. Now, one might think that what explains that A's desire to rule over B, what, might ex what, what explains that A's desire to rule over B cannot justify his rule, is that it would always be defeated by B's countervailing desire not to be subject to A's rule. But imagine there are already some reasons unrelated to A's desire in favor of A's ruling over B. For instance, that A's rule would enable coordination that instrumentally contributes to some valuable endeavor. 
And imagine that when we take into account all the relevant countervailing considerations, including B's desire not to be under A's rule, the reasons for A's rule are just barely outweighed by those against. So if there were just a bit more value to A's ruling over B, one might think, this would normally suffice to tip the balance and justifies A's rule. Yet even though adding just a bit more benefit would normally tip the balance, A's power over B could not be justified by pointing to A's desire to rule over A. Other benefits could do the justificatory job. This particular one could not. For what B is objecting to, I suggest, is not or not just that she's under A's rule. What B is objecting to is specifically A's having power over her because he desires to rule over her rather than serve her. For what B reasonably cares about is not just whether A has power over her, but also whether A has such power on the right grounds. Now, to be clear, B need not have an objection to A's desires ever entering into the justification of A's rule over her. Imagine A desires a good that is realized by suitable coordination, and such coordination is best enabled where A rules over B. Then A's desire may imbue the relevant instrumental good of coordination with sufficient additional value to tip the balance and justify his rule. But that is because A's desire is not a desire to rule over B, but one for various goods specifiable independently of his rule. Nor need B have an objection to A's rule-related desires as such, for A may also desire to rule to serve B by helping her realize goods she has all things considered reason to realize or contribute to the, to the realization of. But since this desire to serve would be satisfied only if A's rule in fact serves B, and what makes it true that A's rule serves B will anyway suffice to justify A's rule over B, A's desire to serve B will not be necessary for the justification of his rule over B. Now, why would B care about the particular good that justifies A's power over her? and care in particular not to be under A's power because A desires to rule over her. I can here only sketch what I think is the understanding of our agency and its place in our moral world that underpins these judgments. On a plausible view, a person's agency has a particular purpose, to enable her to respond to the reasons that she in particular has. And the fact that she has reasons of her own, reasons that differ from those that others have, is itself a non-accidental feature of her moral situation. It reflects that she has a life of her own to lead, structured by its own projects and challenges. The success of her life depends in part on her response to these reasons of her own. Respecting her distinctiveness as a moral agent is to take seriously that her agency is particularly tied up with her responsiveness to her reasons, just as respecting her bodily integrity is to take seriously that her body is particularly hers to use, control, and make decisions over. It is her agency, we want to say, since it is only through this agency that she leads a good life of a certain sort, just as it is her body, since it is in this body that she leads an embodied life. But where political power is involved, treating her agency as properly her own can be difficult, or at least requires particular care. Both coercion and authority, the two forms of power most central to politics, involve one person's intentionally changing another's normative situation, or changing her reasons for action. What is more, the exercise of power is normally intended not just to provide a minor change in reasons, the way a request may, but to practically settle how the subject ought to act, to create a conclusive reason for a particular course of action. If A has such directive power over B, 
then A is enabled to settle what B will do, at least if B is rational, and thus to effectively deploy B's rational agency at will. And in doing so, B's agency is at risk of being treated by A as if it were a mere tool available to be used by A in the pursuit of what A has independent reason to do, rather than as something that is properly B's and should be treated as such. This doesn't mean that A's power over B, and thus his capacity to deploy B's agency, can never be justified. We said earlier that the power relation may be justified if it realizes net good. The benefits and burdens are distributed in line with certain requirements, and only certain goods figure in the justification. In other words, the power relation may be justified if it enables B to more effectively do what she anyway has reason to do. Given an understanding of what reasons she has, that is itself attentive to the significance of her moral independence as an agent. The central point for our purposes is the last one. Among the goods that, uh, that justify A's deploying B's agency cannot be A's desire to rule over B. Why? Because that desire is itself unresponsive to the fact that B's agency is not simply a tool that can be used to ensure conformity to just any reasons, including A's, if he can give suitable directives to B, but is especially tied to B and her life. So the desire itself is disrespectful and thus cannot figure among the reasons that justify A's having the power he desires. All of this, to be perfectly clear, is currently only a sketch. For many purposes, it would be helpful to have a more fully worked out account of this idea of respect for agency. But for my limited purposes today, something less may, I hope, suffice. So rather than delve into the various ways in which the idea of respect for another's agency may be spelled out, I want to buttress the central thought by highlighting how what I have said here about political power and respect for agency has obvious parallels in another case that may be more intuitive, <coughs> that of interacting with another's body and the respect we owe to another's bodily integrity. We are morally barred, we normally assume, from touching another's body without either her consent or suitable justification. Consider, to keep things relatively simple, my touching your shoulder, just lightly enough not to injure you, cause you pain, or dirty your clothes. Even though my non-consensual touching does not harm you, it is normally out of bounds and requires justification. Now, such justification is available frequently enough. I may touch your shoulder, for instance, in order to avoid falling over and ruining my new trousers when the subway comes to a sudden and unexpected stop. The good of preventing my fall and saving my trousers is normally sufficient to justify my briefly touching you even without your consent. But not just any good can play such a justificatory role. For instance, and here the parallels to the previous discussion should be obvious, my desire to touch you without your consent cannot figure in the justification. Imagine that the good of preventing my fall is just barely insufficient to justify touching you without your consent then I cannot complete the justification for my touching you by also invoking my strong desire to touch you. That desire to touch you without your consent or an adequate independent justification is excluded from any justification that I can offer. And as before, this is not because my desires, once again suitably broadly understood, are generally irrelevant. Whether I may touch you to keep my trousers clean could very well depend on how important these trousers are to me, how much I care about them, and so on. It is just this particular desire to touch you without your consent that is unacceptable as part of the justification. The explanation here, as in the case of power relations, is that if non-consensually touching your body could be justified by another's desire to touch you, you and your body would not be granted suitable respect. 
There are different ways in which this basic thought may be theoretically articulated, just as there are different ways in which one could provide theoretical underpinnings for the observations about power and how to justify it. But these details are less important than the central insight that considerations of respect impose limits on the kinds of goods that can justify our treatment of others. Let me conclude this part of the talk by generalizing the point made in relation to desires. I have focused on cases where A's desire to rule simplista was at issue and argued that this desire could not normally play a role in justifying A's rule. One might think that this reflects the fact that it is A's desire in particular that is at issue, but I doubt this is right. For imagine that some third party C desires that A rule over B. Even if there is normally reason to satisfy, D, satisfy C's desire, a desire with this particular content could still not figure in the justification of A's power. If your desire to rule over me cannot justify your rule, then your grandfather's desire that you rule over me cannot either. Importantly, the same is true if the desired issue is B's own. If B desires that A rule over B, not because A's rule over helps advance the purpose of her agency, but simply for its own sake, then B's own desire would be disrespectful of her own agency too, and should similarly be barred from entering into the justification. Finally, let me just flag that I'm inclined to think that what is barred here are not simply arguments that appeal to goods constituted by power relations where these goods have been imbued with value by our attitudes. If desiring that you rule over me is disrespectful because it fails to properly respect my agency, then proper respect for my agency is also incompatible with it simply being a good thing as such, not derived from anyone's attitude, that you rule over me. Even if such a good could exist, and one may reasonably doubt that it could, it could not normally figure in the justification of A's power over B for the simple reason that there is great value in B's agency being treated with the respect B is owed. Now, let me turn next to developing the implications of the position I defend by considering how it affects two views about political power that many philosophers have found tempting. The first has already come up a number of times. Many relationships are non-instrumentally valuable. These include relations between friends as well as between parents and children, and they may, may very well include relations among co-citizens. <clears throat> Parties to these relationships have reason to value them non-instrumentally, as such rather than for their instrumental benefits. And these relationships are in turn sources of reasons for those party to them. There are certain duties I have qua friend or qua parent or perhaps qua citizen, precisely because the relationship is non-instrumentally valuable and I value it as such. What these duties are is partly constituted by social convention, by what are taken to be duties among friends or our understanding of what, it, what makes you a good friend. Let me call this the associative argument for the justification of power relations to highlight its obvious connection to what are often called associative accounts of political obligation. On associative views, there are relational goods that we have non-instrumental reason to realize, and we realize them by doing our part in the relationship. Now imagine that the relationship includes, as one of its constituent, constitutive norms, that one party must obey another. That, for instance, an adult child must still obey an aging parent, or that the citizen must accept rule by a king or by each other. By the logic of the associative argument, these norms provide reasons for the child to be under the parent's authority, for citizens to submit to the king's or one another's decisions, and so on. In the last section, I argued that there is something disrespectful about grounding power relations and considerations that do not advance the purpose of the subject's agency, her conforming to the reasons she has. 
But here, one might think, the power relation does in fact advance the purpose. Just as I have non-instrumental reason to be party to a friendship, so I have non-instrumental reason to be party to a valuable relationship to my parents or co-citizens. If standing in this relationship is partly constituted by my parents having power over me, then I have reason to stand this relationship to them. And thus, their standing in this relationship to me is, one might think, not disrespectful. But I think this can't be right. For by the same logic, there would be nothing problematic about A's desire to rule over B, as long as B has reason to treat A's desire as reason-giving and, once the reason-giving force of the desire has been added, B has all things considered reason to accept A's rule over her. Yet I think there is no doubt that A's desire to rule would indeed fail to be reason-giving even in such cases, precisely because the desire is disrespectful of B's agency and thus B can object to its reason-giving force entering into the justification of A's rule. Something similar is true when it comes to associative arguments, a norm that simply requires B submitting to A's power, rather than requiring that B is under A's power if A's being, if A's being given such power serves B purposes, is disrespectful of B's agency. And just as B could complain about norms that unfairly distribute the benefits and burdens of the relationship and insist that this norm would not be reason-giving, so B could complain about a norm that is disrespectful of her agency in this way. Does this mean that we can never have reason to play our part in relations that are driven by disrespectful desires or social norms? Imagine that C threatens to harm D unless B obeys A. And C's reason for doing so is simply his desire that A rule over B, a desire not grounded in any concern for the purpose of B's agency. B clearly has reason to object to this desire, as well as to the threat that C makes. Yet B may still have all things considered reason to go along and submit to A's rule, since avoiding disrespect may be less important than preventing serious harm to D. It may be argued that by the same logic, a desire or social norm could be reason-giving, even if disrespectful, because the reason we have to avoid such disrespect is insufficient to outweigh the normative force of especially weighty desires or of a norm that is especially central to a relationship. But this misapprehends the role that considerations of disrespect play when we think about the desire or social norm. For I'm not suggesting that their normative force is outweighed by countervailing considerations of respect. Rather, I'm suggesting that their normative force, at least when it comes to justifying relations of power, is conditional on their being respectful in the first place. So even if the positive reason we have to avoid disrespect were relatively weak, the fact of disrespect may be nonetheless sufficient to disable the reason-giving force of disrespectful relational norms or desires. Let me turn now to the second position I want to consider. On the second view, respect for agency, however important when it comes to restricting the justification of non-democratic procedures, imposes no significant constraints on the justification of democracy in particular. Why? Because democracy assigns equal power to each person so that each citizen rules over each other reciprocally. This commitment to reciprocity is, the view suggests, sufficient to solve the problem of disrespect. The basic idea is this. It may be disrespectful to desire that I rule over you unless my rule serves you, but the matter is different if what I desire is that I rule over you and you rule over me. For then I'm simultaneously treating you as both subject and ruler. And in doing so, I may be avoiding the problem of disrespect for your agency on which the previous discussion focused. But again, I think this is mistaken. That I also desire for you to rule over me doesn't undo the fact that I desire for me 
to rule over you for its own sake. If I let you treat my agency as a tool for your purposes in exchange for you letting me treat my your agency as a tool for mine, I may simply disrespect both my agency and yours. And once again, this is unsurprising when we recognize the parallels to other cases. The easiest way to see this involves cases of harm. Normally, I have a right that you not harm me, but I can waive this right by consenting to such harm. Yet if I waive my right simply because I think it would be good as such if you could harm me, then that exercise of consent is tainted with disrespect, disrespect for myself. And this is true even if in exchange for giving you permission to harm me, you give me permission to harm you because I rather like being able to harm you for its own sake as well. Now, I have argued that power relations are difficult to justify by appeal to alleged goods that make essential reference to one person's rule over another. What does this entail concretely for the justified distribution of political power in our community? I highlighted earlier that the most plausible understanding of a broadly instrumentalist position is not committed to the view that relevant goods cannot make any essential reference to the distribution of political power. The value of autonomy seems to provide a counterexample. Appealing to the value of C making decisions for herself is unproblematic because, I suggested, valuing or desiring rule over oneself is not objectionably disrespectful. This explains, in turn, why instrumentalism applies most straightforwardly to the justification of political power. It is sometimes suggested by opponents of instrumentalism that instrumentalism's focus on political rights is difficult to reconcile with the observation that power relations also arise in other contexts, for instance, where there are property rights. So why, it is asked, should there be a special instrumentalist constraint on the justification of political power? The account offered here provides a relatively straightforward answer. Even if having property rights does in fact amount to having power over others, what justifies property rights are not normally goods that make reference to such power. Instead, insofar as the assignment of decision-making power does enter into the justification of property rights, what is appealed to are considerations of autonomy. This does, however, raise a question for politics. What if someone were to justify democracy by arguing that it constitutively realizes the value of individual autonomy, enabling each citizen to rule herself? The right answer, it seems to me, is that instrumentalists are not as such opposed to arguments of this sort. They simply think that no such argument will in fact succeed. Democratic political decisions are decisions by large groups of people for large groups of people. So any decision-making power an individual acquires through the democratic franchise is most plausibly understood as a matter not of her gaining control over herself, but of her gaining minimal control over many other people who in turn have control over her. But then the claim that democracy enables each of us to rule her own life in any interesting sense is hard to sustain. Matters are different where the appeal to autonomy focuses on the self-government of the collective. For if the self-government of the collective is realized through exercise of power over individuals, and I struggle to see what else collective self-government could amount to, then the good of collective self-government is in fact once again a matter of valuing a form of decision-making by one collective agent over another individual one. And this is admissible only where it is justified without reference to a good that is partly constituted by the collective's ruling over the subject. Now, respect for agency is not incompatible with the appeals to the value of autonomy I've suggested. What about the value of political equality? I want to suggest that instrumentalism may in fact make room even for this value, suitably understood. 
Respect for agency bars appeals to goods characterized by one person's rule over another, including, I said earlier in discussions of democracy, appeals to the good of each of us ruling over each other. This is compatible, however, with allowing for the appeal to goods that make a central reference to the absence of power, or at least of certain kinds of power. In light of this, consider two different ways of thinking about the good of equal power or political equality. According to the first, there is something good in our having equal power over each other. And in the absence of such power, we have at least some reason to create it. For instance, if public equal respect is a good, as Cristiano argues, and one way in which it can be instantiated is by each of us accepting as authoritative the output of an egalitarian procedure, then we have reason to create the relations of power that define this procedure, even if there are no relations of power to begin with. According to a second way of thinking about political power, by contrast, we have no reason to create equal power if that requires creating power in the first place. Instead, a concern for political equality is a concern for equalizing power where power relations exist anyway. Imagine property relations are justified by appeal to autonomy, and not because they have any positive impact on who has power over whom. But that once property exists, this will empower some people to exercise control over the lives of others. The power over others that is the result of independently justified property relations might in turn give rise to, dis to a distinctive bad the bad of unequal power. We may have reason to care about how power is distributed because we care about the good of one person's not being under another's unequal power rather than that of each of us having positive equal power over the other. And this concern with equality is compatible with respect for agency because it attaches no particular value to one person's ruling over another. Now, it's important to recognize that everything I have said is compatible with the characterization of the instrumentalist position that we started from. Citizens do not have a basic moral right to a say in the making of the laws, both because it is at least in principle possible that there is no need for laws, because there are no relations of power, and because if there is such need, the requirement of equal power may be realized by giving essentially no such power to anyone, making decisions instead by flipping coins. Correlatively, the account I offer explains Mill's thought that political power is always a trust rather than a right. It is never justified by the intrinsic goodness of one person's having power over another. Instead, it must be justified by some independently specifiable good to the realization of which the subject has reason to contribute. And in this sense, political power, like a power of attorney, must be justified by reference to the positive effects it has on the subject's normative situation rather than by reference to the benefits that accrue to the power holder, qua power holder, as in the case of property rights. Still, the question may be asked, in offering an account of instrumentalism that is more plausible, have I simply made instrumentalism toothless and uninteresting? Some of the points mentioned a moment ago about political equality and collective self-rule should already suffice to show that the position I've sketched makes a difference to a number of important questions of political philosophy. But let me conclude by very briefly sketching one more concrete upshot that I think my position may suggest. Take the issue of prisoner disenfranchisement. In countries that deny voting rights to those convicted of serious crimes, it is common to defend such denial of the franchise on punitive grounds. The lawbreaker must pay a price for what he has done, and part of this price is to lose the opportunity to vote. But notice that such a punitive argument is most plausible if the franchise is assimilated to private property or freedom. 
rights that are justified by the interest of the right holder, who is also the main one to suffer where he is deprived of the right. If the right to vote is not justified on this basis, but instead by appeal to its effects on various other goods that are fairly distributed among the members of the community, then it becomes plausible that denying the franchise to convicts will primarily hurt people other than the disenfranchised. It is as if we punished a parent who had committed a crime by denying her the right to take care of her children, even though that right is primarily justified by the benefit to the child in being taken care of by the parent. And that casts significant doubt on the justifiability of criminal disenfranchisement. Showing this in detail is, however, a task for another day. Thank you. Thank you very much.